If you're here with me, you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 12 to 17 this morning. Matthew 4, verses 12 to 17. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, there are Bibles strategically placed in the, underneath the seats under, underneath you. And you can grab one of those and use that copy of the Scriptures. Well, it was a missionary named C.T. Studd who said this, Some want to live within the sound of church or a chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. These are the courageous words of a man who had a burning desire to take the light of Christ into the darkness of this world. To preach the gospel to sinners who needed a Savior. C.T. Studd was not the missionary who set this precedent or set this example for us. In fact, Jesus Christ Himself went to the darkest places to shine His light. You need to know today that the King, Jesus... He didn't choose the halls of the great temple, or the roads of the holy city, or the religious comforts of Judea as his base of operations. The king chose an outpost in Galilee so that his light would shine where the world was darkest, so that many of the rejects, the outcasts, the commoner, the foreigner, the cripple, the lame, the sinners, even Gentiles like you and I would see the Savior, would have the invitation from the King to His kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew nine thirteen, He said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Sinners, it's those that recognize their need for a Savior. Jesus makes His offer too. The question for you and the question for, for me as I, I look at this passage and see the example of Christ taking the, His light into the darkness is where will I take the light of Christ? Where will I take the light of Christ? Will I be like a light hidden under a basket so that no one can see? Or... Will I, like our King, be the city on a hill that cannot be hidden, shining the light of Christ before others? What will you do with the light of Christ? What will you do with the light of Christ? In our outline today, three points that make up the outline. Uh, you can always pick these up on the way in. First point is this. Time geography, and culture. There is some context to this little event that is helpful in understanding it. Uh, You have to understand the time that takes place, the events that happen. You have to understand somewhat the geography, which we'll get to, and then obviously the culture that that affects. If you look at verse 12, it says this, Now when he heard that John had been arrested... 
he withdrew into Galilee. That's a region. And leaving Nazareth, verse 13, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, that's a lot of, those are a lot of names. We're going to talk about what each of those means. But we have to understand first is that there has been some time that elapsed. There is time and there are events that happen between verses 11 and 12 and verses 12 to 13. We have four Gospels, four Gospels in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of them telling an, an accurate story, a history of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But each of them have their unique angle on the story. Some of them fill in the gaps that the others skip over. And so, to see what happens between verses 11 and 12, we look at John chapters 1 through 3. And we know that during this time, between 11 and 12, several things happen. Jesus has a second interaction with John the Baptist. Jesus meets disciples before formally calling them. He meets Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. Jesus turns water into wine, his first miracle at Cana, at the wedding there. Jesus first cleanses the temple. He does this a couple of times. We see that in John chapter 2. And Jesus meets up with one of the Pharisees, Nicodemus. He meets Nicodemus at night. Has that whole conversation with him in John chapter 3. Now that, those events happen between verses 11 and 12. Before, after his temptation and before he heads north to Galilee. But there is also some time that elapses between 12 and 13, his trip through Galilee and leaving Nazareth. Here are a couple of events that happen between 12 and 13. The detail is in John 4 and Luke 4. Jesus goes through Samaria to Galilee. He meets with the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus evangelizes the village of Sychar, where the woman is from. Jesus heals the nobleman's son in John 4. Significantly, and this plays into the context and our understanding of what happens in our text, Jesus is rejected by his hometown of Nazareth. Luke chapter 4, verse 28, shed some light on the details of this event. Jesus stands up in the synagogue of Nazareth, a synagogue that he had attended regularly as he's growing up. He reads Isaiah 61 in this synagogue, and then he claims to be the fulfillment of that prophecy, claiming to be the Christ. He tells them that they will reject him just like they did all the prophets before him. And they didn't like that message very much. The text tells us in verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They were angry. They rose up and drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Jesus escaped. And now, he then goes from Nazareth to Capernaum. That's the context. It helps us understand why he's going from Nazareth to live in Capernaum. Some commentators estimate that there's about a year's worth of ministry and events here. Between 11, verses 11 and 13. 
So that, that's kind of the context, the time and the events that take place between these verses. It helps us to kind of picture Jesus moving along now in his ministry. And Matthew picks up the story here when he goes to live in Capernaum. Now let's look at the geography and culture of these places, okay? I have a map here for you. You can see that um, the, the area, the land of Canaan is split up into territories, you have Judea, which is where Jerusalem is. Bethlehem, the city that Jesus was born. North of that, you have Samaria. And north of Samaria, up by the Sea of Galilee, you have the region of Galilee. That is where you see Nazareth, the town in which Jesus was raised. That's where you see Cana, the miracle of turning water to wine. There are several miracles that take place there. And then you'll see at the very tip-top, Capernaum. A small town, actually not so much small, it's, a, it's an important town, a village on the Sea of Galilee. Now, because Galilee is a different region than Judea, uh, there are different government structures in place. Galilee is ruled by Herod Antipas. Judea, where Jesus is coming from, that area is under the authority of Pontius Pilate. He'll come back into play later. Pontius Pilate. Now, if you look at the text, it seems as though, when you, when you first read verse 12, when he heard that John, his herald, had been arrested, it seems as though, okay, well, then Jesus is running away. That's not the case. You know who arrests John? Herod Antipas. Who is Herod Antipas, the, the Tetrarch over? Galilee. Jesus seems to be going further into enemy territory. The very place where the person who arrested John uh, rules and reigns over. He, did, he goes into Galilee not because he was running away from Herod. He moves further into his territory. And it seems that the, the arrest of John the Baptist is kind of just functions as a time marker. It's almost like the notification goes off on Jesus' phone. He goes, oh, okay, John's arrested. Now to my next mission. Now to my next appointment. Jesus heads north. And in full submission to his father, we, we, we know that every step of his race was in perfect obedience to his father's will. Jesus' every move is on time. It's according to plan. This is not a detour. This is not him running away. His time has not yet come for him to be arrested. He has more ministry to accomplish. He has appointments in Samaria. He has appointments in his hometown of Nazareth. And, and leaving Nazareth, he went into Capernaum. Now, you'll see in the text, he doesn't just pass through Capernaum. Verse 13, he goes to live in Capernaum. This is where the king decides to set up his outpost. His mission base, if you will. His new ministry headquarters. Now, what is Capernaum? Why is that city significant? We saw on the map that it's on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. It was a busy fishing town. Fishing was a big business in Capernaum. That's why we see a lot of the disciples that Jesus calls, they were fishing in Capernaum. We see Peter, Andrew, James, and John, a part of this fishing business. It's a significant 
city in the eyes of Rome. So significant, in fact, that they set up a Roman military outfit there. It's where we see the centurion stationed. They have a customs station. They're taxing people as they walk through and in and out of that city. And that's actually where we find Matthew, the tax collector, stationed at that custom, custom station. Now, why is this little village or what seems to be a little village so important to the Roman Empire? It is because of this. Capernaum is a critical stop along the trade route from the Mediterranean Sea to the Transjordan area, from the port of Ptolemy to Damascus. The city is right on that trade route. Therefore, tax. Therefore, bustling business. A lot of foreigners coming in and out of that area. And you saw on the map, it seems to be like the most northern part of the land of Canaan. Far, very far, it seems, from Judea and Jerusalem. Now, with those facts, the geography, the culture in mind, we know why Rome thought Capernaum was significant. Why do you think Jesus chose to set up his outpost in Capernaum? Isn't it interesting that Jesus, Israel's king, doesn't go to the heart of the city? He doesn't go to the holy hill. You would think maybe his base would be in Jerusalem. That's where the religious center is, at least in the region around Jerusalem, in Judea. If not, shouldn't his base be in the holy temple itself, where all this religious life centers? No, no, no. Jesus goes north to the outskirts, to the gates of Israel, the place where Israel and Judaism, its religion and culture, intersects with the rest of the nations. That's where Jesus sets up his base. He goes to the region of Galilee, and we ask ourselves, why? Why? Well, the Scriptures tell us why. Matthew tells us why. It's because it was Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles. That's point number two. Jesus goes there so that, look at verse 14, what was spoken by the prophet. Here he is, fulfilling prophecy perfectly. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. See, if Judea uh, were compared to the inner courts of the temple, that is the exclusive place for the religious elite, the Jews, then Galilee was like the outer courts, the court of Gentiles, the place for the commoner, the foreigner, the outcast. You see two names there, Zebulun and Naphtali. Those were the two tribes that Joshua gave the region to in his his conquest long before Christ. It's worth noting that both of these tribes failed to occupy the land fully, disobeyed God's command, and they intermarried, 
And consequently, they permitted pagan influences, pagan idolatry, pagan worship. So that's a negative start in the region of Galilee. The Assyrians came in and they took the northern kingdom of Israel captive in 722 BC and they replaced Jews with more foreigners. So now you have more foreign influences, pagan idolatry, etc. Galilee became like a melting pot of ethnicity and culture, diverse, variety. They sound a little bit like California. Even though the Maccabees, they won the territory back around 100 BC, the many foreign influences still reside there. It was known as Galilee of the Gentiles as a kind of snub from the religious elite. The purists. Oh, that's Galilee of the Gentiles. There's an account of this in John chapter 7. Why don't you turn your Bibles over to this account to see this. Just so you can get a taste of how the Jews saw Galilee. John 7, verses 40 to 52. <clears throat> John seven forty to 52. Now when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? He comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers said, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, the Pharisees, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Fools! The prophets do speak of the Christ coming to Galilee. It's ironic that these Pharisees, these experts in the law, as they claim, don't know it. Matthew searches and shows us. Go back to our text. Matthew shows us why they should have expected the Christ to come to Galilee, even Galilee of the Gentiles. Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. He says, the prophet told us, the prophet Isaiah told us here, and he tells us elsewhere that the Christ would come to Galilee of the Gentiles. Look, um, 
Isaiah 9 verse 1, I have it up there for you. This is the passage that Matthew quotes. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought contempt to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the Galilee. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And then further on in the text, verse 6, we know it's talking about Christ because it's talking about the child that was born. See, where the Jews see foreigners, commoners, outcasts, lowlifes, God sees people. And God sees a people that He planned to save all along. Have you ever missed an invitation? Someone says to you, Hey, I'll see you at the party. And you say, What party? At that point, they should get the clue. But they press in and they go, Oh, you know, so and so's party. Didn't you get the invitation? No, I did not. I wasn't invited to that party. Thanks for reminding me, right? Maybe that's happened to you. If you read through the Old Testament with a Jewish exclusive lens, you might think that salvation was a party that only the Jews were invited to. See, God seems to be working exclusively with the Jews, and it seems to not include well, people like you and me, Gentiles, that is, people of the nations, non-Jews. I don't know the ethnic background of everybody in this room, but I assume a lot of us are not of Jewish heritage. We would be called Gentiles, foreigners of the nations. And so it seems like maybe we missed the invitation to the party. Maybe we weren't a part of God's plan all along, but that is not true. In fact, if you search the Scriptures, you look at the Old Testament, God had us in mind from the very beginning. In fact, the Abrahamic covenant says that God would bring blessing to the nations through the seed of Abraham. And what do we learn in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1? That Jesus is what? The seed of Abraham. The son of Abraham. His offspring. And so we know that Jesus is the seed through which the blessing to all the nations, not just Israel, would come. So here at the start of his ministry, here's a point, important and significant uh, point. Jesus chooses an outpost in Galilee of the Gentiles to say, the seed has come and the blessing follows. People here that need a Savior. People here that I will make followers of me and include in my future kingdom. That has important uh, significance for us, doesn't it? Those of us who are not of Jewish heritage or Jewish ethnicity. Gentile, this is for you. This is Jesus coming to you and making the same offer He made to the people of His kingdom. Uh, people of Israel, you are invited by the King to enter His kingdom. What a great invitation. What a loving King that He would go to the outskirts, to the outcasts, those that the people of Israel snub to offer them salvation and to preach the good news of the gospel, to take the light 
to the place that is darkest. God is not partial in salvation. Salvation is offered to all the nations. This is the first step we see in Jesus' ministry toward the foreigner in Matthew. Toward people like you and me. And praise God for that. Amen? It's ironic that Jesus was not received by many in Israel. In fact, he was rejected by most in Israel. They thought they had their religion and relationship with God all figured out because of their heritage. But rather, we see as we go through the Gospels that Jesus was received by the broken. He was received by the outcasts, the lepers, the unclean, prostitutes, simple men and women, fishermen, foreigners even. Those who knew that they were sinners who need a Savior. And He came to shine a real light in a very, very dark place. Point number three, light in the darkness. Light in the darkness. What does He bring to Galilee of the Gentiles? Look at verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. The prophet Isaiah, again somewhere else, chapter 49 verse 6 says this, It is too light, too easy a thing maybe, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. Speaking of Jesus, he says, no, no, no. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. There's a greater and bigger plan here. God's not just moving to save ethnic Israel, but to save the nations, that his light might reach the ends of the earth. Simeon, when he took Jesus the child into his arms, he said in Luke 2, he says, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation for the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. This is bigger. This is bigger. Jesus said in John 8, 12, he said this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light. He's the light not only to Israel, but to the nations, Gentiles. Now, what does light do? Light is helpful, isn't it? Think about what light does. It exposes what's in darkness, reveals what is hidden. It's a beacon of hope that casts out darkness. It is a guide to the path. That, we, that leads to life. It's a guide to the path away from darkness. So think about what light does and think about Jesus doing those things. That's what he's saying. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way out of darkness. He is the truth that exposes the, light of, uh, sorry, the lies of darkness. He's the life preserver to those dead in darkness, surrounded by darkness. Ephesians 5.8 says this to the Christian, At one time you were darkness, 
characterized by darkness, walking in darkness. You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Every single one of us in this room, either now or at one time, was walking in darkness. That is, we were sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins. Not walking according to the light, but according to the darkness. That's the way of Satan, the way of this world. Dead men and women who needed the light of life. Who needed in our own hearts for the darkness to be exposed and for us to see Christ and be drawn out of it. We needed to be made made children of light. I just can't help but think that maybe some in this room are still walking in that darkness. Walking according to the course of this world, according to the way of Satan. Satan and his worldly devices are darkness promoters. They would have you stay there. Doing everything they can to have you believe the lie, walk in darkness, away from God, and not see the light. You might think to yourself, how do I know if I'm walking in darkness? Here are some fruit. Fruits of walking in darkness. Depression. Anxiety. Fear. Loneliness. Emptiness. Hopelessness. Always wanting and never satisfied. That's some fruit of walking in darkness. Because darkness means hopelessness. Darkness means alone, with no way out. Darkness means blind, given over to your fleshly desires and sinful corruptions. And where does the darkness leave you? Well, feeling hopeless. Feeling like there will be no end to this darkness, this sinfulness. The depression, the anxiety, the fear. You need to understand today that the light is the only way out. That the light of Jesus Christ casts out the darkness of depression, anxiety, and fear. And only He can do that. The light of Jesus Christ assures you of His presence, His joy, His pleasure, His hope. Jesus goes to those, the outcasts, the foreigner, those who are struggling, those who know that they're dead in their sins, And He offers them a beacon of hope, light in Him, a way out, life in His name. I want to encourage you today, if you are walking in darkness, to believe in Jesus Christ. He is the light. To respond to this message that He's about to preach. Here's how you come into the light. Here's how you come into His kingdom. He's about to tell us. Here's His message. Look at verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from your sin to the light of Jesus Christ. Do so today. Matthew shows us that Jesus' departure to Galilee was not just circumstantial, but it was missional. Missional. So that he would preach repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now we notice 
that Jesus' message is the same as John's. The herald that came before, do you remember what John said? John, or uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Here was John's message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sound familiar? Same message, same words. And so what did we understand John to say? Because what John said is the same thing as Jesus, and the meaning is the same. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is repentance? Repentance is to turn from sin back to God. And repentance is the condition to enter the kingdom. We know that repentance is a fruit of faith. It's two sides of the same coin called conversion. Faith is a trust and a dependence upon Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. And in that action, you're repenting. You're turning from trusting idols and sin to trusting in Jesus. It's to turn and believe. So repentance is a fruit of faith, of true faith. And it's the condition in order to enter the kingdom. This is not new. This was all over the Old Testament. Leviticus 26. If Israel would confess their iniquity and turn, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And I'll remember the land. Jeremiah 3.12. Repent, faithless Israel. Then I will give you shepherds to feed. Prosperity in the land. God's presence. Nations coming to Jerusalem. Peace in Israel. 2 Chronicles 7.13, if my people would humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Repentance is required for the kingdom to come and for entrance into the kingdom. Repentance isn't just it, it, the, the word means to change your mind, but it also means a volitional turn, to change your will. It results in a change of speech, a change of action. It's a total transformation and turning from sin back to God. So he says, repent, repent. That's what he says to the Gentiles, the sinner. He says, for the kingdom of heaven. Now what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament. We know that a kingdom has a king, a people, and it's a place. There's land involved. It's actual geography. And so the king here has come. Jesus is the son of David, the king, and he is making this kingdom offer. He's collecting for himself a people, and he offers them a place for his perfect rule, his righteous rule here on earth. Now, what does it mean then that he says it is at hand? Does that mean it's arrived? There's another translation that would say, uh, you could translate that word at hand to come near. It means it's imminent. It's on the brink. It's a legitimate offer, but it has not yet arrived. It will come if the condition is met. If people would repent, and a lot of people did. We would say a lot of people repented. A lot of people followed Jesus, but not national Israel. Not national Israel as an entity. So the kingdom was offered to all. The kingdom was offered as coming and imminent, but Israel didn't repent. And based on their lack of repentance, the kingdom is coming in the future the king will come again to establish his reign and his rule here. 
So the expected kingdom that was offered has not yet arrived. He is coming again, and in his second coming, Israel will come to their senses. There are scriptures that talk about this. Zechariah 12. They will look upon him whom they've pierced. Jesus starts talking about the kingdom in the future in the second half of Matthew. Matthew 19, he talks about the Son of Man coming back in his glory, and then he will reign over the tribes of Israel. Matthew, all of that discourse, 23 to 25. Romans 11 talks about a future salvation of Israel. So the kingdom is offered, and to enter we must repent. And the way that we become kingdom citizens is by turning from our sins and looking to the light, trusting in Jesus Christ. The king invites the foreigner to his kingdom. He sets up an outpost in Galilee of the Gentiles, the place of outcasts, the place of the commoner, to show us that this kingdom offer comes to us as well. What a good king, what a generous king to offer his kingdom to people of all ethnic backgrounds, cultures, from all nations. And we're the great beneficiaries of that promise. Now we notice, if we look a little bit further ahead, that the king gives the church the same outpost. He says what in Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of Israel. No. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Same outpost was granted to us. So the question is, if we're believers in Christ, if we've seen the light of Christ, what are we going to do with that light? What are we going to do with that light? Why do we hide our lights? Why is it so often that we are ashamed of the gospel, that we cower when religious conversations come up in our workplace or in our families, in our neighborhoods? Why are we hiding our lights? Why do we stay in our comfortable silos? Why is it that we're content or happy to allow other people to walk in darkness as long as you know me and my family are not? Why are we afraid of the world, what they might do to us if we shine the light, if we say something, if we speak truth? Well, because in our sinfulness and our flesh, sometimes we become slaves again or walk back to slavery to fear. We're afraid. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 28 that he has authority over all things? Doesn't he say to us in that Great Commission that he is with us always, even to the end of the age? Why is there any reason for us to fear? Why is it that we struggle and we hide our lights? That's not what God has created us to be. When he has transferred us into the kingdom of light, from darkness to light, when he made us children of light, he says, walk in the light. Walk in the truth. Be promoters of truth and light, not darkness. That's who we're called to be. That's what we should be doing. Taking the gospel of Jesus Christ, the light of the gospel, out to all people, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of cultural background, 
circumstances, we're lights. The salt and light of Christ. And we should take His message out to all and as many as we can reach. We should have more of the perspective of a CT stud who forsook the comforts of religiosity to go to the outpost and reach people, reach the nations. See, while the Jews shrunk back with their arms crossed and looked at Galilee of the nations as with snubbery, Jesus goes out to them. Who are we most like when we stand back with our arms crossed, shaking our heads at the world who's walking in darkness, rather than going to them and engaging them with the gospel of light? Do we look more like the Pharisees or Jesus? You know, I'm really sick of just talking about the moral decline of our nation without having the true desire to reach some with the gospel. I think it's really easy for us in our comfortable Christian circles to shake our head at the world and say, oh man, it's getting so bad out there. Oh, I can't believe the world would go this far. They would ask us to do this. Oh, it's so depraved. Crossing our hands, or hands, arms shaking our heads. Oh, shouldn't that stir in us a desire to reach some, to reach more with the gospel, with the light of Christ? Shouldn't we be more proactive as kingdom citizens to tell others of our king and his kingdom and to invite all, as many as we can, to enter into his grace, to enter into his mercy? We could be, I believe, more proactive lights, taking the the basket off and showing the world who our king is and the glories of his kingdom. Where will you take the light of Christ this week? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for, at times, succumbing to cowardice. Forgive us, Lord, for at times fearing men rather than fearing You. Forgive us for the opportunities that we waste when uh, we have an opportunity to share the gospel, to share the light of Jesus Christ, that it's often, Lord, that we will just pass it by. Help us to be faithful wherever we're at, whether it's at home with our children, in our neighborhoods, with our neighbors, out in public at coffee shops and grocery stores, whether it's in the workplace, Lord, at family gatherings. Help us to be faithful lights. Help us to follow the example of our King who didn't set up his mission base, his outpost in the uh, comforts of Judea, but went to the outskirts, to the region of Galilee, to reach foreigners and sinners like, like me. Thank you, Jesus, for extending your offer, for extending the kingdom to people like me. 
Help me to live a, a life of gratitude and thankfulness in response and reach others with that same light. In Jesus' name, amen.